in light of the fact that the Jewish festival of Purim, or more accurately, Purim, is upon us, well, in light of that, I've decided to once again break away from the series that I'm doing now um, to address this festival. And I've got to tell you, over the last couple of years, I haven't done this. I've been in the midst of a series, and locked and loaded, and I'm focused, and I haven't broken away. I'm not going to make that mistake this year. I'm just going to cut bait, and we are going to stop, and we're going to talk about this festival and hopefully give you a greater appreciation for the festival itself and and shed some light on this particular story with the idea of revealing just how intensely prophetic, how intensely significant, how relevant this story is for us today. You know, something I can tell you without reservation is that this is a story that we want to know. This is a story you need to know in these last days and the days that we're living in and the days that are coming up upon us unless you're living in a rock or under a rock or in a cave somewhere unless you're spiritually you're blind you realize we are in the birth pains of the Mashiach which is to say you heard me correctly we are coming upon tribulation are you reading the news? Do you see that Christians are literally having their heads chopped off? Jews are being attacked with cleavers. I don't know what else would constitute the birth pains of the Mashiach. There are signs in the heavens. There are signs on earth all around you. You open your eyes and you see these things. So what I am saying is uh, this story is something you need to have. The story of Purim is something you need to have locked in your heart. And this is why. It is a story of triumph. The things your eyes are going to behold in the very near future, you need hope. You need a story of triumph where despair is turned to hope, where fear is turned to courage, where terror is literally turned to shalom. We need this. Amen? The story of Purim is actually found in the book of Esther. Now, traditionally speaking, this, this, in traditional Judaism, this is oftentimes referred to as the Megillah. So if you hear that term or you read that term, this is what it's referring to. And every year, for thousands of years, the Jews at this time, they call, they recite the Megillah, they read, they study the book of Esther. And one thing i got to say for my festival buffs out there. For those of you who are familiar with the festivals, yes, you will not find this listed in Leviticus 23. No, it is not a Mikra Kodesh, which is to say it is not a holy convocation, which is to say it is not a Shabbat. However, that in no way reduces its importance or significance in any way. We don't want to push this festival aside, but rather this is something that we as believers in Yeshua Both Jew and Gentile, this is something we need to observe, that we need to call into mind, that we need to recollect, that we need to put into our hearts. In fact, right within the book, we do find the command to observe this feast. If we go to Esther 9.20, this is what we read. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus or Ahasuerus in, in Hebrew to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. Now, Adar, if you know your Jewish calendar, it's the 12th month. It's the last month 
in the Jewish calendar. And so this, this festival falls right in the middle of the last month, the 14th and 15th days. Now this year, it's going to be next Thursday and Friday. Those are the 14th and 15th of Adar, uh, just so you know. Now dropping down into verse 28, we read the following. And the, that these days should be remembered. These days are to be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. So right within the book, we're given the command to call these days into remembrance. There is a trumpet blast here, if you will. Do not forget what happened in this event. This event, the things that took place, that transpire in the story of Esther, they were never to be forgotten. And how do you observe Purim? You know, I've had people come up and ask me, the primary way that you observe Purim is to stop and commit yourself to the study of the story. Open up the book of Esther and read it this coming week so that God, the Holy Spirit, can speak to you. There are things in this book of which I'm going to show you that are going to blow your mind. This book is powerful. It's very powerful. This is one of the ways that you can observe Purim. Another way that Jews would observe Purim or the observance of it is on the 14th, uh, next Thursday, uh, Jews will be from dawn to dusk, they fast in honor of what Esther proclaimed. She proclaimed a fast. And they fasted for three days. And so they do from dawn to dusk, they fast. And that's another way to observe this festival. Now, I can tell you this book on a spiritual level, in my opinion, this is as comprehensive as it gets. Uh, the dynamics, the characteristics, the lessons, the prophetic undertones. Understand, they are vast and they are powerful. In regard to you women, if you haven't committed time to this book, you should. You're missing out. Because this is one of the most empowering books in all of the Bible for you women. Rarely do we find in Scripture a scenario such as the Lord raising up, instead of raising up a man to deliver Israel, we find God raises up a woman to deliver Israel from certain calamity, from certain death. It really is a remarkable story, a unique story. Esther, hands down, is one of the greatest examples that we have of what a godly woman should look like. And this is why you should be spending time reading the book of Esther. You want to talk about tenacity. You want to talk about boldness. You want to talk about self-sacrifice. You want to talk about holiness, morality, wisdom. You want to talk about faith. Esther had it all. She had it in spades. She lived it. She practiced it. She possessed these characteristics. She's a beautiful picture of what you women who profess their faith in Yeshua should look like. She's strong, yet gentle, wise, yet humble. She's a role model for our women in this building. Now, I'm, I'm just going to warn you, there is so much in this story to talk about. I doubt very much I'm, I'm going to be able to turn every rock over on this one. Uh, given the, the timetable of uh, what, I, what I have in my mind set up. 
But be that as it may, I am going to cover the, some of the fundamentals of this story, and we're even going to go a little bit deeper than that, because I want you to taste this book. You need to taste the richness, the awesomeness of this book, the meaning of it. And uh, I will definitely do my best with the time allotted to do that for you. Now, I want to begin today, and today is just an introduction, but I want to begin by giving you a little background to the book of Esther. You know, this is a book that I can tell you is one of the most peculiar books in all the Bible. There's a certain amount of mystery that shrouds this book. Uh, This is the only book in the Bible where we find that the name of God, it doesn't appear anywhere in the book of Esther. You want to talk about stirring controversy. You want to talk about mystery. When you do not find the name of God anywhere in the book, and it's the only book in Scripture that does that. And when I say the name of God, I'm not just talking about Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, the Tetragrammaton. I'm talking about another title for God, whether it's Elohim or Adonai. None of the names that we find that are used to describe, to call upon our God, are found in the book of Esther. Not once. The only other book that can even come close to making that claim would also, ironically, come from the Megillot. It's the Song of Solomon. Only one time does the Song of Solomon use the name of God, and it is not the Tetragrammaton, it's not Adonai, it's not Elohim, it is simply the fragmented Yah. That's the, that's the only other time. Now, having said that, without finding the name of God in the book anywhere, despite it being absent, I can tell you God is very much present in the story. There's no question to that. And the more we dig into this, the more that you are going to, you yourself personally are going to see that to be true. The book of Esther is an inspired writing. I don't have any problems with the fact that the name of God isn't found in it when you read this story. Now, in addition to possessing the characteristic of not having the name of the Lord mentioned, the controversy doesn't end there, but rather continues when you realize that this is the only book in the Bible that isn't found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You want to talk about feeling the fire of mystery, feeling the fire of controversy. This is something that has puzzled many, many scholars for years. Why this book wasn't found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. And to further add to this book's uniqueness, we find that there are words in the book of Esther that are not found in any other book in the Bible. In other words, there are Hebraic, there are Hebrew transliterations found of a different language. The language of the Persians. This is a Persian language. So here we have all these terms being used in the book of Esther. You don't find them anywhere because they're Hebrew transliterations of the Persian language. In fact, when you think about Purim, I mean, this is what Israel calls the festival, the festival of Purim. Purim is not Hebrew. Purim is Persian. And it actually means lots. That's what it means. It's in, as in casting lots, something that is quite familiar to the Bible. And this is kind of the, uh, the backbone, the thrust uh, of, of the whole story itself of where Haman casts lots. Um, let me add to this uh, the name Esther. The name Esther is not Hebrew. Again, the name Esther is Persian. But I think it's worth noting 
and looking at what her name actually means. Her name means star. That's what it means. And I got to tell you, and you should already be ahead of me on this, there is no way that this is a coincidence when you consider the fact that throughout Scripture, and even extra-canonical books, you look at books like Enoch, right, and Second Estress, we find that the righteous of God, they are described metaphorically as stars. So this is not a coincidence that Esther herself is literally called a star. Let me just give you one example. I, I give you many. I'll just give you one in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. This is talking about the resurrection of the dead. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. You get that? Those who are wise, meaning the righteous, those who follow, who are servants of the living God. They will shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What a powerful passage. We are literally likened the righteous. Those who live and committed their lives to Yeshua are likened to stars. So when we see the name Esther and what her name actually means, it is quite significant to the story itself because the very meaning of her name tells us something about her, about who she is. And let me take it a step further. It tells us more than that. It tells us something about Israel. Because on, on many levels, uh, Esther, as you're going to see, she is representative of the nation of Israel. Now, with that said, moving forward, continuing to cover, uh, just some, get some of these basics out of the way, we find that the book of Esther is said to be written in around 460 to 350 B.C. Now, this is where you go, oh, you know, this is one of the components where there's really not much controversy this is one of the few areas of this book where there's not much controversy. Most scholars fall into this category somewhere. There are just a few stragglers that go a little bit earlier, whether 200 B.C., 150 is the very earliest I've ever seen that someone would try to state that this book was written. But um, there's no dispute here. However, as we go to identify the author of this book, we find that this is something that, again gets mysterious in nature. There's several ideas who actually authored this book, and the best way to describe this, to give you an idea of all the different uh, thoughts out there, is to show you the commentary from the pulpit commentary, who actually is addressing the authorship of the book of Esther. And this is what it says. Ibn Ezra, and for those of you who are not familiar with Ibn Ezra, is one of the most prolific, profound, renowned uh, rabbinic commentators in the history of Judaism coming out of the Middle Ages. And Ibn Ezra, among Jewish, and Clement of Alexandria, among Christian commentators, assigned the book of Esther to Mordecai. Now, I like how it strikes the chord, the balance here. Here we got a thought from Judaism, and here we got a thought from Christian, early Christianity. Uh, Clement, he was an um, early church father. So here you have two thoughts, uh, two different schools, if you will, but both of them agree that, hey, the authorship of Esther is none other than Mordecai, but it doesn't end there. It goes on to say, Rabbi Azarias, who's a, he's a 16th century rabbi, says that it was written by the high priest Jehoiakim, while Augustine and Isidore make Ezra the author. 
And this is the Ezra of the Bible that we read, Ezra and Nehemiah. This is who they're referring to. They're saying Ezra is actually the author of, of the book of Esther. It doesn't end there. Then it goes on to say, In the Talmud it is said that the work was composed by the men of the great synagogue. Well, Augustine and, and Isidore, they would line up with this because Ezra was considered part of the great assembly or the great synagogue. It would have been men like uh, all those prominent men that came back to restore the temple. Men of Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, Zechariah, Haggai, uh, Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak. Uh, all these types of guys, Zerubbabel. These were all men of the great assembly. It's thought, potentially, according to the Talmud, they say, okay, well, these are the, these are the authors of the book of Esther. So the reason I show you these things, I just want to give you a little perspective in regard to the fact that the exact authorship is not really known. It's, it's debatable. However, this in no way affects, in one way or another, the, the legitimacy and the authenticity of the book itself. You know, these concepts uh, even in, are found in the New Testament. I mean, you think about the book of Matthew, or you think about the book of Hebrews. Well, no one really knows who wrote Hebrews. I mean, we speculate, I will tell you, I really believe the Apostle Paul wrote it. And if he didn't write it, it was someone that was with him and talked just like him. But there's nothing for certain. It's, it's, it's just open for debate. Now, there's a reason I, I bring up all these things. When, when, you, when you put these things in a basket, if you will, when you consider all the controversy, and you consider the questions, all the uniqueness that shrouds this book, the ironic thing of it all is it's completely indicative of the nation of Israel themselves. I mean, think about it. The Jewish people have, from their very existence, been immersed in controversy. They've been challenged in every way in the sense that, uh, of, of their legitimacy. Every way they've been challenged. So in a tongue-in-cheek way, I say that I, it kind of, you kind of step back and when I read about all the controversy, and I study about all the controversy, it makes me crack a smile. Because that epitomizes the nation itself. How apropos is that? To have a book that's all about them and their turmoil that they go through uh, to go through these things uh, to this day. So, with that little backdrop, let's break into this story. We're going to begin in verse 1, Esther 1.1. 1, 1. We read, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, or Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. I want you to understand the gravity of this statement. Basically, the writer's coming out and saying, This is the world's superpower. This is Medo-Persia. I mean, you think about, what did they do? They went and conquered the world power. They went and conquered, Persia went and conquered Babylon. And ultimately, over the years, they became the world's superpower. Just to give you an idea how vast this kingdom was, here's a map. And this map, it's okay. I mean, here you have Pakistan, and then you get into India over here. And here you see how vast this kingdom was. Coming all the way down into Africa... Here you would have Egypt, here is Sudan, it's not listed. But down here, even further, you would have um, Ethiopia. And so here, when it's talking about this vast kingdom, this doesn't even really do it justice. It's farther down here. All this to say, this is the world superpower. This king was awesome. 
what he ruled over. It was impressive, very important to note as we continue. Moving on to verse 2. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel. Now, one thing is, is I want you to be familiar with some terms. Shushan is also known as Susa, or even in modern day Iran, it's Shush. And so just to kind of give you some perspective here, here you have Tehran. This is the capital of Iran. Down here you have Susa, which is also in Iran. But here you can see this border. This is the border of Iraq. You can see Susa is quite close to the border of Iraq. Now, just kind of go back to our last map so you can see where he ruled from. Here it is right here, uh, known as Susa or Shushan, just to give you some perspective. Now, continuing on in verse 3. That in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his kingdom, his glorious kingdom, not just kingdom, glorious kingdom, and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. So here we see there's really a revelation taking place here. There's a revelation where the king reveals the glory, the excellence of his kingdom. The splendor of his majesty is experienced. It's pretty cool. Moving on to verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days. Now, what is wonderful about this is you people actually get to sit in a position similar to that of the Jewish people over thousands of years. And what do I mean by that statement? I mean, you have knowledge that maybe some of the Christian church does not. In other words, many of you have kept festivals. You have practiced them. Some longer than others, but you know them. They're meaningful to you. And so, when I read the statement, when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days. What does that make you think about? You can't help but think about a feast, seven days, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days long. You can't help but go there. You know, if you grow up, as a Jew, you've grown up in this, in the Messianic, it pops out at you. Well, this is relevant. I'm going to tell you this is very, very relevant as we continue, and I'll explain why a little bit more as we go on. So he made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Moving on to verse 6. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and and purple on silver rods, and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. Basically, what is the writer conveying here? It is beyond breathtaking. What this king had, what he displayed, the glory of his kingdom, was beyond breathtaking. It was awesome. Moving on to verse 7. And they served drinks in the golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. The king is generous. You'll see this. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory for the king, uh, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household. 
that they should do according to each man's pleasure. In other words, he wasn't running around dictating, being Gestapo. He was a very kind and very generous in this manner. Moving on to verse 9. Queen Vashti. And we have a new character here. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. So here, at the end of the festival, the seven-day festival, on the last day, the seventh day of the feast, we find that King Ahasuerus, he calls for his wife because he wants to, to present his wife before the people. Now, I want to give you a little more perspective on actually what is happening here, what is transpiring um, with him calling his wife. I want to take you to this very verse that is on the screen, only I want to take you to the Greek version of Esther. There is a Greek version that is included in the Apocrypha. If you have the Apocrypha, you've probably read it. It's included in the Septuagint or the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. And what you'll find is that in the Greek version of Esther, if you put it side by side next to the Hebrew, you'll notice it's a little bit heavier. It's a little bit lengthier. Why? Because it provides more information than the actual original Hebrew does. And essentially, what it does is it gives us a very special look into the traditional Jewish insight on the book of Esther. It really reveals how they interpreted various passages within the book itself. And you've got to understand, this is one of the precious moments in translation where you hear a lot of negative connotation coming out of the Septuagint, just a perverted, corrupt uh, rendition of the Hebrew Bible. It's not the original uh, because it's in Greek. Uh, what few people realize, it is one of the most precious moments in time that you have because when a Jewish man goes to translate his Bible, you better believe you're going to be given insights as to how he understands the word. These are precious golden nuggets that you can pull out. You can find some amazing things in the Septuagint. You're going to see that you can find some amazing things in the Greek version of Esther. And so you're given a rare moment in time when translation is given. Now, does this mean that today as we come out with all these new translations of the Bible that all of them are filled with golden nuggets? Absolutely not. But one thing I know is Jewish people revered God. They feared God. And they took care and skill when they translated these things into the then-known language, this Koine Greek, all right? In fact, I can add to this, Josephus, if you're familiar with Josephus, right, first century Jew, Josephus gives an amazing, lengthy commentary on the book of Esther. I've read it. It's amazing. It's a really, really good commentary. What you'll realize if you read that commentary, he relies heavily upon the Greek version of Esther. He's pulling things out that are exclusive to the Greek. Um, definitely worth your time to take a look at that. So what I want to do 
is I want to take you to the Greek version of Esther because I want to give you some perspective. Now, here's the Hebrew. So the king calls his eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and officials, for she was beautiful. Behold, this is how the Greek reads. Chapter 1, verse 11. To escort the queen to him in order, listen, to proclaim her as queen. It is so vitally important. This is monumental insight into why the king was calling his queen. He wanted, he desired to proclaim her as queen. Now I mention this because there are some really far out speculations as to why Ahasuerus called Vashti. For example, there are ideologies out there that will tell you, well, the king called her to present her naked before all the princes, before all the province. He wanted to present her naked wearing only his crown. And basically, it was, it was, a, it was an act of humiliation. I'm going to tell you, nowhere can you find such an interpretation, you, in your wildest imagination, coming out of the Hebrew or coming out of the Greek, Esther. Because that's not what's going on. You're missing it if you're even going there. He is calling, he desires to proclaim his queen among the people. It's his desire. He wants to proclaim her as queen. And to place the diadem on her head and to have her display her beauty to all the governors and the people of various nations. For she indeed uh, was a beautiful woman. Now, already, right here in chapter 1, we find that this story is dripping with prophetic, with spiritual undertones. The story and the characters of the story are representative of a much deeper reality, a spiritual reality. Let me give you an example. When you look at King Ahasuerus, or King Ahasuerus, in many respects, on many levels, when you look at the story, you step back and look at the story, you find that the king is representative of the Lord. That the king is representative of Yeshua. And I'm not the only one that sits in this camp. Jewish tradition holds the same. Let me show you some commentary. On the mystical level, King Ahasuerus alludes to God. You get that? King Ahasuerus alludes to God. The king of the world. The Midrash reads the name Ahasuerus as an acronym for Aharit Vershit Shiloh. Alluding to the one whom the end and beginning are his. So, when we read this story, understand it's not just a one-dimensional story. This is not just recorded history, but rather this is a story that holds deep spiritual connotation. And when you understand the prophetic significance, this story is all of a sudden going to come magically alive on multiple levels. It's going to take on a whole new meaning. A whole new meaning. Now, getting back to our story, we find that the king, he calls upon his wife, he wants to proclaim her as queen. Well, how does uh, she respond? We go to verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. This is amazing. Here, the king calls for his wife. She refuses to come. She refuses to listen to his voice. She refuses his commandment. Again, when you look at this on a deeper spiritual connotation, you realize that Vashti is absolutely representative of the rebellious of the Lord. 
Those whom the Lord has called, those whom the Lord desires, but unfortunately they refuse to listen to him, despite his calling, despite his desire to proclaim them as his wife. You know, all throughout Scripture we find over and over again, we find this repetitious scenario of two distinct and very different characters being played out. Let me give you an example. We have Sarah versus Hagar. And we know Sarah is the mother of Israel. She is the mother of freedom, the mother of liberty, the mother of righteousness, whereas Hagar is the mother of bondage. She gave birth to bondage, to oppression. Very different scenario. Give you another one, Ruth and Orpah. Ruth, completely, I mean, completely, just a great prototype of righteousness. She left her people, she left her gods to be joined to Israel. And when Naomi tries to convince her, go back to your people, go back to your gods, she said, no way. For your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Awesome picture of righteousness. Whereas her sister-in-law, Orpah, what did she do? She heeded Naomi's words. She went back to her people and she went back to her gods. We continue. Look at the two women mentioned in Proverbs 8. One, proclaiming righteousness, calling for righteousness, calling uh, for holiness. The other one, proclaiming wickedness. That stolen bread is sweet. It's very different contrast. You have the two women in Revelation. The woman mentioned in Revelation chapter 12, she is glorious. She gives birth to righteousness. The righteousness that was revealed to the world. Holy. Her offspring is holy. They follow the commandments of God. They have the testimony of Yeshua. And yet as you come to Revelation 17, there's another woman mentioned. And she is wicked. She's an abominable character full of abominations, full of iniquity, full of immorality. Very different contrast. You have the ten virgins, which really are two. It's just defining two different groups of people. You have the wise virgin, and you have the foolish virgins. So all throughout Scripture, I'm making a point here, all throughout Scripture we find this scenario is literally being displayed for all to see. Well, it's no different in our story of Purim. Because in the story of Purim, we find Vashti. She is representative of the rebellious, of the wicked. While Esther, on the other hand, is totally representative of righteousness, of those who obey. It's this type of spiritual insight. It's this type of connotation that we need to pick up on as we go through this story. Understand, when we start reading things right off the bat, that this king is holding the seven-day feast, and that this king's kingdom, there's nothing like it, It's beyond beautiful. Understand, these are flags. These are markers to pull you in and say, there is something more here. Pay attention. It is so powerful when we see these things come up. Things that are familiar to us that we know are holy. Like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the feast that lasts for seven days. It is meant to suck you in. There's something more here. And it's calling for you to seek it. Seek and ye will find. Moving on. To verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice. Those closest to him, being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Mersena, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, 
who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. Now, before I show you what the king says to these men, there's something I want to address here, something that I find fascinating. I just can't blow over it. And that is the fact that this passage explicitly states that the king has seven princes. And these princes are special. Two things we're told to prove this is that they had special access to the king. And not just that, they are the ones who are closest to the king. Now, when you read something like this, and you're familiar with scripture, lights start going off all over the place. The bells start ringing all over the place. Specific passages start to flood your mind. You can't help but draw parallels. Parallels that use the same imagery and fall into the same context. And that's the point of it. That's the whole point of it. Now let me play this out for you. If we go to the book of Revelation, John, the revelator, right at the beginning of the book in chapter 1, he describes this incredible experience where he states that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and he hears this voice behind him. And this is what happens next. In verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Verse 14. He, uh, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. I want to draw your attention to these seven stars that he's holding. What are they? We are told as we drop down to verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand in the seven golden lampstand. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. In other words, these seven angels are the seven princes over Yeshua's kingdom. You understand that? Over Yeshua's church. Because the seven churches mentioned in Revelation, it's, metaphor, it's representative of, the, of Yeshua's church as a whole. This is a powerful parallel that we see with Ahasuerus' seven princes, who are in fact are over his kingdom, who in fact are closest to him. You think about these angels mentioned here in Revelation, you can't get closer to Yeshua than being in his hand. He's holding them. Not just that, but in addition to this, we also have other imagery elsewhere, such as found in the Apocrypha, the book of Tobit, where we see this very type of imagery being spoken of. I want to take you to this book, to Tobit, it's not part of the canonical 66 books, but uh, many scholars will tell you this is quite valuable information. In chapter 12 of Tobit, we find an angel. He is sent to Tobit, and this is what he says to him in verse 14. I was sent to you to test you, and at the same time God sent me to heal you and Sarah, your daughter-in-law. I am Raphael, which is interesting because that actually means the God who heals and here this angel sent to heal him. I am Raphael, one of the seven angels who stand ready and enter before the glory of the Lord. Special access. One of these seven angels. Special access. So when we read this Esther 1.13, and we read about that there is these seven princes, they are closest to him, they have this access 
to him. This is not a coincidence. There's a much deeper spiritual revelation involved here. There's a reason this was recorded. And the reason that these specific details were given. As I said before, it is to ignite you. It is to ignite your spiritual antenna and go, wait a second. There is so much more here to this book. I need to step back. I need to prayerfully consider what I am embarking on. Because it is inspired. It is of the Spirit of God. Not just recorded history. So with that said, in our story, Ahasuerus, he calls for Vashti. She refuses to come. She rebels against the king. And the text said that the king was furious. And here's what we read. Esther 1.12, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious. Huge. This is very important. The king was furious and his anger burned within him. This parallels something so profound, something so powerful that we see coming out of Yeshua. And you know what that was? You're going to have to come back next week and find out. So we're going to end right here.